I have here in my hand guitar string. I don't know if you've ever played with a guitar string before, but it's wound up right now because it just came out of the packet, and now it's going to go all over the place. It's free. I can hold it in my hand, twist it. It does all kinds of interesting little things. But it's not actually free to do what a guitar string is supposed to do, which is to produce music. So I take my guitar strings and I fix them to my guitar. I tighten them until they're taut, until they're tuned. Only then is the guitar string free to actually be a guitar string. By the same token, we are free, or at least we seem like we're free, when we are uncommitted, unfettered, unbound. But we are never free until we are what we were intended to be. Real freedom is not freedom from something, but it is freedom for something. Does that make sense? Freedom needs a purpose in order to be true freedom. To be completely free is to have no meaning, no purpose in your life, which actually devalues your existence. This morning, I want to talk about what true freedom really means. I think it's an appropriate subject for Memorial Weekend. On Memorial Day, we celebrate our national freedom by honoring those who fought to secure and to maintain that freedom. And this morning, I would like to look at the purpose for our ultimate freedom, freedom purchased by God and for His purposes in our lives. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me. We're in Romans still. We'll be in Romans for a long time at the rate I'm going. We're taking all of one verse today. Romans 8. I'm going to start in verse 18 because I want to give a little bit of context to the verse we're actually going to get to, which is Romans 8.28 this morning. But let's start reading in Romans 8. Verse 18. Again, we did this last week, and I'm, I'm just going to go over a few things a little bit to kind of remind you of what we talked about, but also to make a few other points that will tie into Romans 8.28. So starting in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the patents of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with the with God's will. And we know, this is verse 28, this is where we're going to camp this morning for part of it. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called 
according to his purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a promise. What an incredible promise. Perhaps one of the greatest promises of Scripture that we have is that you will work things to our good. And you do it for those who love you, who are called according to your purposes. Father God, help us to see clearly what that means for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Last week I talked about the idea of our sufferings, groanings, if you will, not comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I talked about how the creation groans, believers groan, and the Holy Spirit groans with us as we journey in this broken, fallen world. Okay, that didn't work. It's free. It's definitely free. There was one thing in all of this that I would like to, to revisit before we look at verses, or verse 28 this morning, which is literally our passage for the day, the one verse. That idea is expressed in actually in verses 20 and 21. I didn't have time to say much about that last week, but it's one of the most interesting parts of the passage. Listen to verse 20 and 21 again. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. For the creation, folks, was subjected to frustration. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? It's what it says in verse 20 there. Have you ever been frustrated? Okay, anybody that does not, you know, raise their hand or say an amen or something at this point is lying, okay? Have you ever been frustrated? Yes. Yeah, okay. That's kind of a universal emotion, isn't it? To be frustrated is to experience dissatisfaction, a feeling of disappointment, exasperation, or weariness caused by goals being thwarted or desires being unmet, unsatisfied. How does frustration then apply to the creation? The only way to understand it is to consider how the creation should have been in comparison to the way that it actually is. You see, the creation was originally perfect. It was not created to ever undergo what this passage says or calls decay. It's actually hard to imagine what that would mean. Last week, I talked briefly about the law of entropy in physics, which it refers to the constant and irreversible degradation of matter and energy in the universe to increasing disorder. Now, that was a whole lot of words that basically means that our universe basically is degrading, decaying, in some ways fast and in some ways very slow. But nevertheless, it is undergoing decay. A part of the law of entropy says that energy tends to dissipate or degrade until it reaches equilibrium in a closed system. In other words, if I introduced a limited source of heat in this room right now, heat being a source of energy, that energy, heat, would spread throughout this room until it is equal in all parts of the room. That's a closed system. Now, in a perfectly insulated room, you get 
the temperature to a nice 72 degrees, and it would stay that way forever because energy never actually disappears. Dissipates, doesn't disappear. It may change forms, it doesn't disappear. Energy remains a constant. At least that would work in a closed system until somebody opens the door and some of that energy rushes out the room, right? As soon as the door opens, your closed room or closed system becomes an open system. In an open system, like our universe, energy from any source, like our sun, continues to degrade or dissipate. That degrading is part of the fall of creation because it is, in essence, a form of decay in an open system. Honestly, it's, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, but it'll, that, that ex explanation will do for my illustration this morning. The creation was never intended to undergo this kind of loss of energy, this decay. Just like your body was never intended to age, to weaken, or decay. Yeah, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm 56 years old, and I know the truth of the matter that, you know, we degrade over time. It's just the truth. Creation, our planet, our universe itself was actually never intended to age, folks. It was never intended to weaken. It was never intended to decay. Those of you that are under 30 probably understand this, or over 30 probably understand this better by looking back 10 years. I have to look back 30 some odd years. But I remember what it was like when I was 18, 19, 20, you know, when I was playing tennis for whatever college I was going to at the time kind of thing. Boy, you felt like, you know, you were invincible, you know, which is why there's a certain amount of foolishness that goes along with being 18, you know, because we, we don't really <laughs> appreciate our own mortality at that age. I can't do the same things now that I did three decades ago with the same strength, with the same endurance that I had back then. That, folks, is decay. Now, with that in mind, imagine a creation that is thousands, thousands of years into the process of decay. Okay, I'm only 30, 40 years into the process of decay. Imagine a creation that is literally thousands and thousands of years into that process. If getting a few years older frustrates you, think about our planet. Talk about a case for frustration. Not to mention that creation isn't to blame for its current predicament either. According to our verse, for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice. In other words, it didn't do anything or choose this to deserve the condition it's in. But by the will of the one who subjected it. That's a cruel bit of information to throw into the mix, isn't it? The creation doesn't deserve to be in this process of decay. This process was allowed by the one who subjected it. Now, who did that? God. God allowed it as part of the curse leveled at Adam and Eve in the garden for their collective disobedience. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Most commentators look at the next part as the future fulfillment and restoration of all things. When God does away with this fallen, decaying world and creates a new heaven and a new earth, 
This will coincide with the regeneration of mankind when we receive our new bodies, eternal once again in their nature, just as they were originally intended to be. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with that idea, but I do think that that idea is very limited and completely incomplete in its conclusions. Listen to the verses again, verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now think about that. God subjected the creation to decay in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. This terminology, this in hope, carries with it the possibility of failure. You realize that? If I hope for something, it's not quite yet a sure thing. Uh, Hoping for something is kind of wishful. It may or may not happen. I hope to be rich someday. Okay? Nah, it may not happen. Okay, it could. It might. Okay? But... Mm, not necessarily, right? Might, might not. Yeah, well, you have to, play the, you have to play the lottery to actually win the lottery, which I don't do. Okay. But a hope is something that is, has a possibility of failure. If I hope for something, there is the possibility that it will not be realized, right? So listen, there is no possibility that God will fail to one day redeem all of creation. That is not a possibility. God will not fail. It will happen. We may not know when, but we do know that it will happen. I submit, therefore, that in hope here does not apply to future events of the new heavens and the new earth because that's not a hope. That's a sure deal, okay? So what is he talking about, the hope thing? If that's true, then only one other possibility really exists, that it applies to this time and this place, this moment. To me, this is why things get really interesting in this passage. Basically, it means that God holds out hope that this fallen world will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God through us right now, in this life. Think about it, folks. God hopes in us extending our glorious freedom to this fallen planet. You know what has to happen in order for us to extend our glorious freedom to the planet? We actually have to possess glorious freedom, right? We have to actually walk in glorious freedom ourselves. Freedom from what? Well, according to the passage, frustration. Everybody admitted earlier that you get frustrated, right? Okay. Kind of part of the human condition, right? Frustration is the thing he's talking about because that's what is plaguing the planet right now. All of creation exists in frustration at the moment. Frustration is really the antithesis, the opposite of freedom. This is going to take a minute for me to to really explain, so bear with me. Freedom 
is experienced through the release of bondage. In our case, as the children of God, we experience freedom as we are liberated from the lies and the wounds that influence the way we respond to God and to life and to people. We all have needs, and we all need for those needs to be met. When we seek to have those needs met by anything or anyone other than God, then we will experience a certain level of frustration. You want to know why you get frustrated? Your needs are not getting met, okay? That is just the basic truth of frustration. It is the experience of needs not being met. This will happen. It's kind of a guaranteed situation in a fallen world. The only way to have those basic needs met in healthy ways is to find them met in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is where you will never be disappointed, so you cannot be frustrated. Now think about that. What would that look like in your life? To never succumb to frustration again. Peace, rest, joy, joy. That's what your life would look like if frustration was removed. There would be contentment in all circumstances, right? Is that possible? Paul said it was, right? When he wrote to the church in Philippi, he said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Is it possible to live content? Yes, it is. Paul did it. So can you. How? Verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Frustration happens because we tend to live in our own strength. We think with our own limited intelligence. We respond from our own emotional brokenness. Honestly, I, I kind of struggle here to find words to really express just how important this is for us, folks. Listen, leaning into God, leaning into His Holy Spirit for everything provides you with heaven's resources for living content in this life. Free from frustration and able then to extend or give that contentment away to be able to give away the glorious freedom that you've found by living in subjection to God, finding your needs met in Him. Every time we move in God's strength, in God's thinking, God's grace, we redeem a little bit of this broken, decaying world. Do you realize that? Can we redeem it all? No. No, I'm just going to be quite honest with you right here. No, you can't. You can't redeem it all. If you could redeem it all, then there wouldn't be a point in a new heavens and earth, right? One day, God will do the ultimate redeeming. That's true. But in the meantime, we are given the privilege and the responsibility of redeeming that which comes into our purview, our circle of influence, our ability to touch, our ability to speak into. What matters is that every time we redeem a situation, a broken part, so to speak, 
we reveal the glory of God to all creation, to people and planet alike. Again, verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. This is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the revelation of the goodness and the glory of God to the planet through us. This is what the planet's waiting for. This is what all of creation, fallen as it is, planet and people included, are waiting for, for the sons of God to be revealed. Now, I said all that to lay a foundation for verse 28. Verse 28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Just a couple of things to consider in this short verse. First off, foremost here, is the knowing. There is a confidence here that is expressed in the goodness of God, and we know. We don't think, we don't hope, we know. This is not a maybe. This is not a hope so. This is a confident statement. John MacArthur states in his commentary on this particular verse, he says, we know means that Beyond all doubt, every aspect of our lives is in God's hands and will be divinely used by the Lord, not only to manifest his own glory, but also to work out our own ultimate blessings. What follows the we know is the statement that God works for the good of those who love him. Therefore, think about this, the knowing is about what? the goodness of God. That's what the knowing is about. Yeah, I think Bill Johnson is right when he says that there is a showdown coming in the church over the issue of the goodness of God. I believe it's a corporate issue and a personal issue both. It's corporate because it will divide the body of Christ based on how we view the goodness of God through our different lenses. The conservative church tends to view the goodness of God as pertaining to our future, heaven to be exact, over our current reality, this life. In other words, they, they struggle through the daily thing of, well, this is the nasty now and now, and they hope for the sweet by and by when everything will be repaired, everything will be good again. I remember several years ago as Janet and I were in Africa, and Janet had a conversation with a, another missionary board member that revealed this mindset very clearly. Her husband had some real issues. I believe it was cancer that he had been dealing with. Her take on the goodness of God was that it was about what was good for God or the kingdom of God and not necessarily what was good for the individual believer. She would not agree, folks, with David in Psalm 27 that Stacy read this morning where he declared, I am still confident Okay, he's sure, he knows, he's confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living in this life. That's what it means. David was confident. It's the same knowing, the same confidence in our verse this morning. The conservative church looks, looks at that verse we're dealing with today and, and they interpret his purpose for us as our ultimate salvation, the new heavens, the new earth, getting to be with God in person. In other words, God will work out your salvation because you love him. That's how they look at the verse. You can read it in commentaries. I have plenty of them. That's not what the verse says, but because of their experience of suffering in this life, 
they override what the verse says and they make it fit their experience. That way they can understand the goodness of God in the midst of their pain. They can't reconcile the goodness of God with the suffering of this life. Therefore, God's goodness must be about heaven. It must be about the future. It must be about another life. On the other hand, away from the conservative church, much of the church today is beginning to come alive to the idea of the goodness of God in the land of the living. They're looking for it. They're praying for it. They're declaring it over their lives. They tend to be shunned by the conservative church as those people that, exp- that, that believe in health, wealth, and prosperity. And so you have this battleground forming over the issue of the goodness of God. Is he really that good? What's the truth? The verse is very clear. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. We know, we are convinced that God works for our good, period, nothing else, both in this life and, yes, someday in the life to come. It is not an either-or. It is a both-and proposition. What's more, we know that in all things, God works for our good. There's no limit to this verse. When you look at it closely, we know is a confident statement, and what follows that, in all things, expands that statement, that promise, to every area of our life. Not just in the hard times, the painful times, the suffering times, but in all times, God is good and God is working for our good. Yes, it's easier to see, perhaps, when you're hurting and God brings relief. It's easy to see that. But really, even when things are going well, God is there and he's working for your good. In every situation, in every part of your life, he is working things out for your good. Well, Scott, then what about the hard things in my life? Where is his goodness when I'm suffering? Where is his goodness when I'm in pain? Where is his goodness when I'm experiencing loss? I appreciate Graham Cook saying, God allows in his wisdom what he could prevent in his power. God allows in his wisdom what he could prevent in his power. No, God does not remove all the hard things from our lives. He's smarter than that. He knows that without those trials, we would never know the amazing power and strength he provides when we lean into him. If you've never been hurt, how would you ever understand the joy of healing? Right? How would you ever appreciate the joy of healing. God allows in his wisdom what he could prevent with his power. God is ultimate power. He could take away every trial. He could take away every pain. And someday, by the way, he will do that. That's part of the promise of the new heavens and earth. But in this life right now, for us to truly understand just what it means to be connected to God and, the, and the, the joy and the peace and the rest and the prosperity that comes from that, we have to actually know something else. We have to know what lack looks like in order to appreciate that, in order to appreciate what it means when we lean into him and we find the rest and the peace that we need. 
Without the hard times, we would never know the joy of overcoming. Folks, you cannot know the joy of triumph without the struggle of adversity. The good news is that he works good in all things. Therefore, there is no trial, no hardship, no painful place where his goodness is not applied to your life. The extent of his goodness towards us hasn't any barriers. It is in all things. There is nothing too difficult for God. The only qualifying factor for experiencing the goodness of God in all things is love. That's what the verse says. For those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We are the focus. We are the recipients of his goodness based upon one thing, love. Not how much we love, not how well we love, only that we love him. Now, is there an expectation from God about how much and how well we love? Yes, there is an expectation. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That is the commandment. That is the expectation. But that expectation is not leveled in this verse because if it were, we would automatically judge a person's love for God based on the circumstances of that person's life. You see how that would work? God works all things to good for those that love him and are called according to his purposes. If we tried to evaluate that love based on the goodness of God, what we see in, in, in worldly terms, how we're blessed, we would automatically start to judge one another. People with lots of hardships in their life would be deemed poor lovers of God. And people with what appeared to be an easy, pain-free life would be held in regard as good lovers of God. Believe it or not, that was actually a mindset in Judaism. Wealthy people who had an easy life were thought to have special favor with God. The problem with that mindset is clear when you consider the life of Jesus. No person ever walked the planet that had more favor with Father God than Jesus did. And yet, Jesus said of himself in Matthew 8, 20, foxes have holes and birds, have the air have, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. The truth and reality of this verse is that the goodness of God is applied to everyone that loves him, period. Because it's through those who love God that his purposes are accomplished. And that's the last part of this verse. I really like this part of the verse, by the way. God has a purpose for us in the world, folks. Did you know that? He has a purpose for us. Some think that the only reason we're left on this planet after we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior is to evangelize other people. How many have heard that before? It's what's taught. I would expect you have heard it before. To share the, goodness, the good news of Jesus Christ is our purpose in being here. Folks, that is part of it, but it's not all. In fact, it's not even the real point. Believe it or not, it's kind of a, a side product. We're here for one reason a reason that underlies and supports every other outcome. By the way, people getting saved is an outcome, a result, if you will, of our actual purpose. Ultimately, we are on this planet living this life for one purpose, to bring glory and honor to God. 
And we do that, folks, by walking in glorious freedom of the sons of God. We do that because he has provided us the opportunity to be free and then to extend that freedom to the rest of creation. So much of evangelism today is about trying to convince somebody about the truth of God. Some people spend all their time trying to prove to non-believers that God actually exists. In fact, we have an entire discipline in theology that's about proving the existence of God. It's called apologetics. I always thought that was kind of a weird name. I'm going to apologize for God. Apologetics really just comes from giving reason, okay? Which isn't a true apology when you stop and think about it. You know, that's an excuse. But it, it got this name for whatever reason. It's called apologetics. I haven't met many people who gave their lives to Christ because they were convinced it was the right thing to do by someone's logical explanations of why God exists. Truth be told, far more people come to Jesus because they've encountered someone who walked in some measure of the glorious freedom of the children of God. They saw what they really wanted in life in the life of another person. They saw a blessed life, a life touched by the goodness of God. They saw a life that reflected the glory of God, the God who makes all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. If your purpose is to bring him glory, then of course it follows that he will work things to the good so that that can be accomplished, so that his glory can shine out from your life. What does that look like? It looks like your freedom, the glorious freedom of the children of God. I believe that Jesus was so attractive to the masses because they saw him in true freedom. He possessed true freedom. Folks, freedom is attractive. When I'm free from the need to be validated, loved, and supported by people because my needs are being met by God rather than people, then I am free to love, to encourage, to comfort, and to serve other people with no expectation of return. I don't know about you, but I really like to be around people who love, encourage, comfort, and serve me. Wouldn't you like to be surrounded by people like that? that? That had no expectation of you, okay? Because all of their needs were already being met in God, okay? They didn't need you to meet their needs, right? They're actually free, free to love with unconditional love, right? Those kind of people we like to be around, right? I like to be around them. Make my life a lot easier, wouldn't it? I experience a certain modicum of that. You all do. I experience that from my wife and my children. And, and it, because they're not completely free, it will never be quite what it should be. But there are moments when I, when I get that. And you know what? There are moments when I look to the wrong places for my love and support and comfort Okay, and in that moment, I'm not completely free either. And that's a burden to my wife, okay? Because she's the one that bears the brunt of that most of the time. It's just the, the, the truth. But the more that we 
walk in freedom, freedom that all of our needs are being met in God, then glorious freedom actually happens. And when glorious freedom happens in our lives, folks, more and more happens. Guess what happens to the creation? It gets redeemed. When I don't have expectations on anyone or anything other than God, (coughs) then I am free to love creation, to love people, to work on their behalf, to serve the creation. I am free to bring heaven to earth through the power of God. And that is the revealing of the sons of God. That is what all of creation groans, waits in eager expectation to see. The people of God, you and I, walking in that kind of freedom because it sets the planet free. People and creation alike. Does that make sense? All of that ties in to this whole idea that God works things to the good for those that love him and are called according to his purposes. His purpose is for us to glorify him. We glorify him by loving him and placing all of our needs at his feet. And he provides the goodness, okay, He provides the good that helps us get there. This is the incredible promise of this verse, that we would be set free because we believed and trusted in the goodness of God for every need. Does that make sense? This is the promise that God holds out for us. This is the promise of the verse. I love to quote this verse. Memorized it many, 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 many years ago. I love to quote this verse to people because it brings such hope. But it is also the thing that reveals the glory of God as we walk in his freedom and sets the planet free. That, that is true freedom. That is true purpose. The glory of God revealed before all creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you've included us in this. You didn't need us to prove how glorious you are. But you decided to redeem all of creation through us by allowing us to walk in glorious freedom. And you provide the way for us to do that by turning all things to good for those that love you and are called according to your purposes. Father, thank you for this incredible promise. I pray, Father, that it gives us strength for the weak. Every time we come across something that that wants to rob us of our joy, rob us of our, our peace, rob us of our rest, that we would remember and apply this verse to that situation, that you are working all things to our good because we love you. And we are called according to your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.